Well, good morning. Uh, it's good to be here with you. If you uh, grabbed a scripture journal uh, when you came in today, you know that we're starting the book of Philippians. If you have your whole Bible and you want to open up to the book of Philippians, that is great as well. Uh, it's in the New Testament. It follows Ephesians. Today, we're going to look at the first two verses here. A series entitled The Joy of Partnership. Now those are two words that you're going uh, to see the word itself, but you're also going to see the theme of those words just running through this whole letter. This, this idea of joy that Paul has when he talks about uh, the relationship that he has with the Philippians and the partnership that they have together. What's so interesting about this letter is that this is one of the letters that is really easy for us to go back to the book of Acts and see the beginning of this particular group of people. So if you're taking notes, which is the idea of the scripture journal, that you would write things down as you see things, I'm going to invite you to circle words, underline them, highlight them, uh, write little notes next to different words. What you're going to see is this beginning of this group of people that would become the church at Philippi in Acts 16. So if you just write Acts 16, you can go back and read that later. Acts chapter 16, Paul and a guy named Timothy, who are both introduced to us right here at the beginning of this letter to the Philippians, are on their second missionary journey, and they come to a city named Philippi. And in Philippi, they meet a couple different people that were told of in this particular encounter. The first is a woman named Lydia. Lydia was uh, a wealthy woman. She uh, owned her own business. She sold purple goods. Purple was identified with royalty. The scripture tells us in Acts chapter 16 that God opened her heart to hear what Paul was communicating to her, the gospel. And she believed. Then it says that shortly after that, they were walking through the town of Philippi and they were being followed by a young girl who was calling out things at them, to them, about them. But what's so interesting is what she was calling out is that these men are messengers of God. They're followers of Jesus. She was possessed by an evil spirit. She was enslaved to people. Because of this evil spirit, she was able to say things about other people, and the people who owned her made money off of her. And I love the way that Luke writes it in Acts 16. He says that when Paul became greatly annoyed... He turned around to the young girl and he cast the demon out in the name of Jesus. And because of that, these people who owned her could no longer make money off of her. So they went and complained to the city officials and had Paul arrested. So then Paul is in prison. Now let's be honest, prison in the first century is not like prison in the 21st century. Okay, There's not... 
consistent meals through the day. There's no yard time where you get to go work out and get super buff. Nobody's doing tattoos. Okay, you don't have a TV and a ping pong table. You don't have any of that stuff. Paul is literally in a dungeon with a dirt floor and no light. He has shackles around his feet. Most of the time, prisoners in a first century jail would have their hands up like this, shackled to the wall. He couldn't go anywhere. It was dark. But God showed up. It says that Paul and the other prisoners were singing hymns of praise. And suddenly there was something like an earthquake. And the doors fell. They could leave. Their shackles fell off. The door is no longer in their way. They could leave and the jailer comes rushing in because he knows that if the prisoners have escaped, it's his fault and he will be sentenced to death. So he takes his sword and he's just going to end his life in that moment. And Paul says, wait, we're still here. And the jailer says, what must I do to be saved? Paul shares the gospel with him. He believes and immediately takes Paul and the others to his house because he wants his family to know the gospel and to believe in Jesus. These are the people that this letter is written to. So you can understand that when Paul has met these people and he experiences the joy that comes with salvation, that these people have believed in Jesus, that he has a deep love for them, right? So much so that he would write to them. Have you ever received a handwritten letter? I know, if you're under a certain age, you probably don't do that anymore, right? And when I'm talking about a handwritten letter, I'm not talking about when you were in junior high and you passed a note or somebody passed a note to you and said, check yes or no if you like me, okay? That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about legitimately someone sitting down, taking time to craft words together and say something and communicate something very specific to you and then send it to you. You see, that's what Paul has done here. He's written a letter to the people that he so deeply loves. Now, I've grown up over the years and seen the change of those trends, right? I remember getting in trouble for passing notes in class, usually stupid things that didn't even matter, right? But when I think about handwritten notes or letters, there's one particular time that really comes to mind. You see, it was, uh, it was a, a, about six weeks before our wedding day. And I have this great track record of leaving the country at really opportune times. So six weeks before our wedding day, I went to China for 14 days. And Anna wrote a note, a letter, for every day that I would be gone. And they were dated. She had taken time to write these letters and not just the same thing over and over. 
They were specific letters about specific things for specific days. And each day there was this sense of joy when I could open a new letter and see what had been written. That's the type of letter that we're reading right here. Look at Philippians chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father God, we come to you right now. Lord, as we open up your word, God, as we see just these two short verses of introduction into this letter. Yet these two verses, full of joy. God, would you give us that depth of joy in our own lives, God, in our relationship with you and our relationship with others? God, would you give us everlasting joy? Lord, I pray that over these next several weeks as we read through these words that have been written, God, that we would see the love that you have for us. God, the depth of love that you have towards the people who are created in your image and likeness so much, so deep, that you would go to the cross and you would die in our place for us. God, we thank you for that and we pray this in your name. Amen. Two verses here, and there's two words that I want to draw your attention to. Both in verse 1, you see the word servants? I want you to circle that word servants. What, what does that mean? Servants. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus. Now, I think if you just see the word servant, you, you probably have this idea come to mind. Right, of what a servant is. So, so the preposition that follows of Christ Jesus is so important because we know who they're servants of, right? And here's what's so interesting is that in the original language, the Greek word there that's translated servant is the word doulas. It's the word doulas. You guys aren't reacting because you don't know what that word means. The word doulos means slave. Now you have an internal reaction because you have an idea of what a slave is, right? Some translations translate it bond servant. It's a servant who's indebted to someone else. That's why it's so important that it says of Christ Jesus. Paul and Timothy are not owned by other humans. They are slaves of Christ Jesus. Romans 6, Paul's also the author of the book of Romans. He speaks to this concept and idea of what it means to be a slave in Romans 6. Let me just read this for you. You can write this down in your journal. If you have your whole Bible, you can flip to it. Romans 6, 15 through 23. He says, what then? 
Are we to sin because we are not under law but under grace? By no means. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, same word, doulos here, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient to the, from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. And having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. I am speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness." But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Paul says, I'm a slave to righteousness. I'm a slave to Jesus Christ. He's the one who owns me. You see, a slave doesn't own their own life, right? A slave doesn't own their own possession. You say, well... I don't like that idea of slavery. Listen, I'm not talking about chattel-based slavery because of the color of your skin that is American history. I'm talking about being enslaved and indebted to the God of the universe who died in your place. Listen, everything that you have, nothing is yours. It all belongs to God. Which is why it is so difficult to obey God's command when you think the things that you have are yours. Because you live your life with closed fists around the things that you think you own. But Paul says, no, when you've been awakened to the gospel, when you believe in Jesus, now you're no longer a slave and shackled to the things of the world, to your sin. You're now a slave to righteousness. You've been set free from sin. So when Paul says, I and Timothy are servants of Christ Jesus, that's what he's talking about. He's saying everything that I do is for Jesus. Everything that I have that you would say are my possessions are not actually my my possessions. They're gifts from God that I've been entrusted to steward. You see how that changes the idea of the things that you have? You see, if we think those things are ours, what happens? We start to worship those things. We start to hold those things tightly. And so then when God convicts us of holding something worldly too tight, we get angry with God, right? We start to fight with him. 
But if we live our lives with open hands, that the things that we have are gifts from God that we've just been given to steward, it makes it just a little bit easier to follow God's commands, doesn't it? Because we see those things as things that he owns. So when Paul experiences all the things that he experiences over the course of his life, you see this later in chapter 1, he's able to say this, verse 21, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I live, great, I'm living for Christ. If I die, I gain because now I'm with Christ forever. Paul lives his life with open hands. And you know what? He lives his life with open hands so much so that he takes this young guy named Timothy under his wing. There's other places in scripture where Paul actually references Timothy as his child in the faith, his son in the faith, that he was mentoring Timothy. Let me just pause here and reflect. I want to ask us this question. Who is your Timothy? Those of you who are following Jesus, who have been following Jesus for years, regardless of what your actual age is, you've been following Jesus, you've been walking with him, you've been studying his word, you've been following his commands. Who is the younger believer that you're discipling? Because I, I get it, right? Like, as an adult, as an older person in society, like, people who are younger than us, they just tag along and they kind of become annoyances, right? Right? Like, I don't want that little person tagging along. Don't think of it in physical age. Think about it in spiritual maturity. See, because the reality is, is that in spiritual maturity, you could be discipling someone who is physically older than you because they haven't been walking with Jesus. Paul takes Timothy under his wing and he teaches him the gospel. It's likely that Timothy probably uh, started really following Jesus during Paul's first missionary journey. But when you read the personal letters that Paul writes to Timothy, you actually find out that Timothy was raised up to know the faith. His mother and grandmother were strong disciplers of Timothy. But who's the younger believer in your life that you're walking with? Think about yourself. Who's the older believer who's leading you? Who's discipling you to be a servant of Jesus Christ? Here's the second word that I want us to see. It's the word saints. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi. Now, this word saints is synonymous with all believers. Okay? He's, he's talking not to specific people, 
only, right? He's not just writing this letter to Lydia. He's not just writing this to the young girl who was uh, rescued and delivered from her demon. He's not just writing this to the Philippian jailer and his family. No, he's writing to all believers in Philippi. Whenever you read a passage of Scripture, you should understand it in the context of what it's being written in. So if you read a particular verse, you need to read the other verses around it to understand the theme and what's being communicated. But you can't just read that particular passage or chapter without reading the entire letter. You see, isn't it interesting that if you get a personal letter from someone, you don't just read one line at a time, right? What do you do? If someone has taken the time to write a letter to you, you probably make time to sit down and read it, right? So then why, when we have these letters in the Bible, do we just read one verse at a time? Why don't we just sit down and read the entire letter? I get it. You're thinking, man, there's 16 chapters in Romans. That's going to take a little bit of time. You're right. But there's only four chapters in Philippians. It won't take as long to read that. When you read the whole letter, you understand the greater context. You understand what's happening, what's being communicated here. Paul's writing to all the saints at Philippi. Look at this. Psalm 85 Verse 8 says this, Let me hear what God the Lord will speak, for He will speak peace to His people, to His saints. But let them not turn back to folly. Paul is writing to all the believers at Philippi. So let me tie this together with this take-home truth. The collective gathering of believers, the saints, are laborers, were servants in the kingdom. And not just any kingdom, the big K kingdom, the kingdom of God. You see, Paul is not raising himself above Timothy or the Philippians. He's saying, no, I'm a servant of Christ Jesus, just like you, all the saints, are also servants and laborers in the kingdom. It's the same call for us that a collection of believers, saints, are to be laborers, we're to be servants of the kingdom. Right? We're going to see this played out more as we dig deeper into the letter and we see this, this strong idea and relationship of partnership that Paul has with the Philippians. But there's one more thing I want us to see here in verse 1. Because Paul says to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi. So he's talking to all the believers but he says, with the overseers and deacons. So he specifically names two groups of people at Philippi. Why? Because he's making sure that all the saints understand that these two groups of people have responsibility to lead. 
They've been called to serve in these particular areas, that of overseer and deacon. The word overseer here is the same word that uh, we see as elder. They have the responsibility to lead the group, but, but what, I don't want you to miss this. It says, with the overseers and deacons. You see, the overseers and deacons are not outside of the group of saints at Philippi. They're a part of it. Paul is writing to all the saints, which includes those who are serving as overseers and deacons. You see, this is some of the, the, the really um, uh, deep weeds that we get into when we talk about leadership within the church, because sometimes church leaders uh, tend to act like they're better than the rest of the congregation and that they're separate from it. But the reality is, is that we as leaders are actually a part of the congregation. We're a part of the flock. Like as the lead pastor at Restoration Church, I have to be pastored and shepherded by the other elders here. I'm a church member just like you are church members at Restoration Church. I'm not above you. I'm with you. You say, why does that matter? Because of the other things that Paul is going to say in the rest of this letter, it matters that the flock at Philippi know that the overseers and deacons are with them, not separate from them. You say, what do I do with this? The collective gathering of believers, the saints, are to be laborers, servants in the kingdom of God. What do I do with that? Well, I think the first thing that we have to do is we have to join the saints. Like if you're not a believer in Jesus, then you are outside of that flock. But the scriptures say that, that Jesus uh, will continue to bring those who are outside of the flock into the flock. That Jesus is still, listen to me church, Jesus is still in the business of saving people. Do we believe that? Like Jesus is still in the business of saving people. And it doesn't mean that he has to die on the cross every day. No, he died on the cross 2,000 years ago. And he's still saving people today because of what he did 2,000 years ago. And if we believe that, then we're going to be servants in the kingdom and share that with other people. Because we want them to join the saints. We want them to be a part of the church. And if you are a saint, if you're a believer in Jesus, if you have a relationship with him, if you're a part of the church, then you need to be laboring in the church. You need to be serving the church. That looks different in different seasons of life. It looks different in different contexts depending on where the gathered body is, right? Things that you would do to serve within the church and within the, the uh, community that you're in would look different here in Adel as it does in Chicago, right? It looks different, but that doesn't remove the responsibility to be laborers for the kingdom, in the kingdom, to see new saints come in. We need to serve. And let me point out again, 
Paul says, with the overseers and deacons. That doesn't mean that the elders and deacons of the church say, all of you need to serve. No, we serve with you. And we do it with joy.